Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here today. Lots of guests in our midst today. We want to say welcome. Uh, we have a philosophy here at VLC. We believe everyone matters to God. And so we want you to know that you matter today, not just to us, but to your Heavenly Father. God has great love for you. And no matter where you've been or what you've done, He has a great purpose and plan for your life. And we hope that your time with us today, you get to experience that love in His presence. Um, so my name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, over the last year or so, we've been kind of diving into the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. And uh, today we are in Matthew 26. In the timeline or the story uh, where we're at is the night, the final night before Jesus' betrayal or the night of his betrayal, before his crucifixion. Uh, last week we talked about a story about a woman who poured perfume over Jesus to kind of prepare him for his burial. And now tonight we're going to read about and be observing the Last Supper. So this is where we are in Matthew 26. So if you have your Bible with you, you can navigate there. The verses will also be on the screen for you as well And uh, as we go through this part of our story. Now, the Last Supper, or the Supper of the Lord, is a tradition that's been practiced for nearly 2,000 years. It goes way back to this very night. In the text we're about to read, this is the moment it started the tradition. It started it all. Now, different churches, depending on your church background, your church tradition, different churches practice this ceremony different ways. And uh, their traditions kind of guide how they uh, observe this ceremony. Uh, some call the Lord's Supper communion. If you have a, a Catholic background or more liturgical background, you may have grown up calling it communion. And the traditions that, that we grew up with will determine how we've experienced uh, this ceremony. Now, some churches, they, they have you come down to the front and, and get your own uh, wine and juice or, or juice and, uh, and bread and then take it back to your seat. Some have uh, these really shiny like receptacles and they have all these guys gather up the front and then pass it out to you. Uh, some churches use grape juice and, and, and bread. Some use wine and bread. Some, like us, use both juice, wine, and, and bread. Some make their own bread. Some order the really stale, nasty stuff from an online catalog. So, you know, depending on what church you've grown up, what background you have will, you know, determine how you've experienced the Lord's Supper. Some churches do it weekly, some monthly, some annually, and the like. But no matter how your church has done it, no matter how you've grown up observing this ceremony, Christians have per been participating in the Lord's Supper to commemorate the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. It's not just something we do to feel spiritual. This is something we do to remember. Because it's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that made salvation possible, that made relationship with God possible. So this is not an insignificant Thing. And so today we're going to read in our text, Matthew chapter 26, this story that talks about when the Lord's Supper was first introduced. And then we're going to talk a little bit what I believe God wants us to keep in mind as we think about and participate in the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to gather together at his table and eat and drink together. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17, in regards to the Last Supper... Matthew records this. He says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, You will see a certain man and tell him, 
the teacher says, my time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. Now, how many wives in here would wig out to know that some guy and his 30 friends are going to invite themselves over to your house for dinner with no previous notice? I mean, that's kind of a weird situation. But Jesus and his 12 disciples, and there could have been some others with him, this is what he does. He says, um, you, we're coming over. Get ready. Get out the fine china. This is going to happen. Uh, verse 19 says, so the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were there eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? And he replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible will it be for the one who betrays him? It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. And Judas, the one who would betray him, asked, Rabbi, am I the one? As if he didn't already know. And Jesus told him, you have said it. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. He broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. Verse 27, he says, And he took a cup of wine, gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And they sang a hymn, went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, God, our ears are attentive to you, our hearts are open to you. So God, as we look at this moment, this intimate moment with you and your disciples, may we remember why you came and why you died. That it was because of our sin. The scripture says that if you had not revealed yourself to us, we wouldn't even have the desire to go looking for you because there is none righteous, not a single one. That we would sin even without regard to your law, your truth, your character, your nature, because we are sinners, we are fallen. And because of your great love and compassion for us, you willingly came, took the form of a servant, and gave your life for us so that we could be forgiven and be made new, that we could know our heavenly Father, and that we could have relationship restored with our Creator. So we thank you, Father. And as we read and discuss the Scriptures, speak to us now. Reveal the areas in our lives that we've withheld from you, things that aren't right with you, God, and bring us to that place of confession and repentance so that all that we are can be wholly yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So this the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, was at a specific time during the Hebrew calendar. It was during the festival or feast of Passover. Passover was a feast that first began a thousand-some years earlier after God delivered Israel from the land of Egypt. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for uh, several hundred years, they were wickedly oppressed and uh, they were crying out, Scripture says, that God heard their cries because of the misery that they were in. And God chose a man named Moses to lead them safely from Egypt. 
And we all know the story. It's a very common story. God rains down these ten plagues uh, in order to get Pharaoh's attention. Hey, look, my people are leaving. Let them go. But yet Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. And just before the last plague, the death of the firstborn, God comes to Moses and tells him, I need you to do something. I need you to lead the people in a type of ceremony, a type of cleansing, a type of washing to lead them in a meal so that this last plague doesn't affect them. We read in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. It says, From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. I announce to each of the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share it with another family in their neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be one-year-old male, each a sheep or a goat with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens made without ye- and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. But whatever is not eaten, burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Carry out your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. And that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son, firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the moment. This is... The do or die moment for Israel. Are we going to honor God? Are we going to obey? Are we going to trust him? And so they decide, yes, we're going to put, cast all of our chips in with God. They follow his instructions. They paint the doorposts with the blood of the animal. They follow his instructions with this meal. And that night, the death angel comes into Egypt. And great mourning and cries of loss were heard the very next day. There was such a devastation in the land. The Pharaoh finally relents his pride and says, let God's people go. And Moses, as we know in the story, leads the people out of Egypt into the promised land. And ever since that night of deliverance, Israel has been observing this meal. Today you can go into the Holy Land around this time in their calendar and you will see the families observe what they call the Passover Seder, where they will gather these same uh, elements, the the meat, the, the bitter herbs, and and uh, the bread, and they will gather together. They'll read from the Old Testament and recount the story of their deliverance, just as God instructed Israel that night. In this meal, they would have eaten some specific things. As we just read, they would have had meat from the sacrifice. They would have eaten these bitter herbs, and they would have had fresh, unleavened bread. You see, in order to eat the animal, they had to kill the animal to prepare the meal, And not just any animal, but it had to be a unique animal. It had to be a perfect and spotless 
lamb or goat. And this is significant because what God was really revealing to them in this sacrifice goes back to the very beginning, the point where Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God and introduced death and suffering into the world. God told Adam that if you choose to disobey, if you choose to go your own way, you will surely die. Death is going to come. Paul in the New Testament to the church of Rome, he tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. That the result of sin is death. It all leads to death. And so if Israel was going to escape the next plague, which was death, if they were going to escape God's judgment, then something was going to have to die in their place. So the animal had to die. It had to be a sacrifice to atone or make amends to make up for the sins of the people. And by eating the animal, what they were doing is they were symbolically becoming one with that animal, portraying that the curse of death had fallen on them, that God was right in his judgment, that they were admitting to their wrongdoing, that his judgment against them would be just. However, in killing the animal produced the spilling of blood. The death of the animal was not enough. It wasn't enough that the animal lost his life. The blood had to be shed. And the question is, why did it have to shed its blood? Well, God tells us in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, through Moses, Moses writes this. He says, for the life of the body is in its blood. And I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. And in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, 21 through 22, he says, In the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's not enough that the sacrificial animal had to die. The blood had to be spilled because that is where life comes from, life for a life. And without the shedding of blood, forgiveness and the covering of their sin would not have been possible. In order for those who are dead to live, something that lives has to die. And not just something living, but something pure and valuable enough to make up for the difference. This animal was spotless. It was, in essence, guiltless. And its blood, the source of its life, had to be poured out because it's the life that has to be given as a substitutionary payment to cancel the sin debt of the people before God. Now, the blood wasn't given to them as a drink. No, the blood was given to them to be painted over the doorposts of the home so that when the judgment came, when the death angel came, those that were guilty before God but covered by the blood of the lamb would be passed by. And so the nation of Israel was rescued or saved from that time of judgment. Because they were covered by the blood. The blood is significant. So they had the meat, and they poured out the blood. The second thing they ate at the meal was the bitter herbs. Now, in doing some research, uh, the bitter herbs are said to represent the struggles of the people during their trials in Egypt while they were enslaved, the plight of Israel in slavery. And I believe God wanted Israel to remember as they were eating those bitter herbs was that, that there was a reason why salvation was coming. There's a reason why that the life they were currently living was not the life God intended for them to live. God did not intend for them 
to be slaves. He did not purpose for them to be enslaved. No, he purposed them to live in freedom and in his presence and in relationship with him. And so these bitter herbs were given, so if there was ever a case of forgetfulness where they forgot how hard it was in Egypt, or, or maybe they started to think, well, man, following God's pretty tough. We may have had it a little easier as slaves, that these bitter herbs would remind them that, no, there's a reason why they are where they are today. They were miserable. They were dead men walking. They were desperate for God's deliverance as they were enslaved. Then they also ate unleavened bread. Jesus confirms to us in the New Testament that yeast symbolically represents sin. And Jesus tells his disciples as they were preparing bread one time not to use any yeast because a little yeast will infect the entire loaf. And just like a little yeast infects the entire loaf of bread, so a little bit of sin infects and contaminates the entire soul. Just a little bit of sin is enough to separate you from God. The Israelites were commanded not to use any yeast with their bread because God's standard of holiness is that there is no sin in his people. And he did this so they would understand that as they walked away from the bitterness of slavery, they walked through the open door of salvation made possible by the shedding of innocent blood and the death of a guiltless animal, that judgment would pass over them. He was communicating through this ceremony that there was a reason for everything. This is how relationship is restored. Whoever is covered by the blood, whoever is united in the death of the guiltless one, whoever is walking away from the, the slavery and the enslavement of their previous life would be walking in freedom. They would be like unleavened bread, pure and blameless in his sight. Now, as the disciples are enjoying this meal, they gathered this meal together. This is why they, they entered the man's house, as they were going to observe the Passover meal. As they're sitting down, instead of Jesus going through the traditions of reading the Old Testament scriptures and talking about the different elements and going through that tradition, he shifts gear a little bit. He changes some things up, and he institutes something new. Instead of going through those traditional reenactments of the Passover, he just takes the unleavened bread. He blesses it. He breaks it, and then he takes the cup of wine, and he blesses it and passes it around. And the interesting thing here is that he doesn't utilize the other elements that are on the table that would have been there as they prepared that meal for him. He doesn't use the meat or the bitter herbs. And though they may have already been enjoying these things prior to this moment, Jesus, by leaving those things out of here, is communicating and revealing something to them, and now even to us, that essentially no other sacrifices are needed. Though they did this year after year, they sacrificed animal after animal by leaving out that meat and leaving out that portion of the meal, he's indicating their sacrifice is no longer needed because there is one who is among them that is a greater sacrifice. There's one who is among them that is greater and that from this day forward, no other death would be necessary to open the way of salvation, because Jesus is the door. He's the door to salvation. He is the great sacrifice. His sacrifice would be sufficient to provide a way to salvation for all people for all time. Paul said the wages of sin is death, but he follows that up by saying the gift of God is eternal life. 
through his son, Jesus. Jesus doesn't use the meat because meat is no longer needed. Jesus doesn't use the bitter herbs either, which were to remind the Hebrews of their time in Egypt. Israel, the time of Passover, they, they observed this meal to remind them not only of God's faithfulness, but also about what that life of enslavement and sin to the world brings. It brings pain, it brings suffering, it brings death. And God knew Israel's heart would be divided, and so he instituted these feasts and these, these ceremonies to continually remind them of what he was doing and, and what his will for them was. And we can even read in the Old Testament, just after they left Egypt, entered into the wilderness, it wasn't long before some of them were grumbling and complaining and wanting to go back to where they once were. Because they believed a lie, they caught, caught up in this lie of the enemy that they actually had it good in Egypt compared to the desert. That life following God is actually harder than a life living by or for yourself. And they believe that lie versus the truth, which is that life is much better walking in the freedom and in the presence of God. So this Passover meal was a meal of remembrance, and we can read how they fell victim to those lies. But Jesus purposely doesn't use the bitter herbs here, the herbs of remem remembrance. And this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah 43, verses 17 and 19, the prophet Isaiah records this, speaking for God. God says, I called forth the mighty army of Egypt. With all of its chariots and horses, I drew them beneath the waves. They drowned, and their lives were snuffed out like a smoldering candlestick. Here Isaiah is speaking for God. God is reminding the nation of Israel. He's reminding, hey, remember what I did for you in Egypt? Remember what you were brought from, you were delivered from? Remember the things that I did to take you out of that land? Remember how great it was, the, the walls of water and the water crashing down on the army, the pillar of fire? You remember that? You remember why you did the Passover meal? Do you remember the moment you became my covenant people? I became your God and you became my people. Here Isaiah, for God, is calling the nation of Israel to remember their history and the years and years and years of observing this ceremony. But then in verse 18, God says something strange. He says, but forget all of that. Forget what I did for you in Egypt. Forget all of the things that I have had you observe for a thousand years. Forget all that. And I can imagine Israel reading this from Isaiah is like, say what? What? I mean, are you sure? You drinking a little of the Kool-Aid today? I don't know what's going on. You know, I can just imagine them being like, what do you mean forget all of that? This is what our whole nation, our whole lives, all of our traditions were built on. Well, then God says something else. He says, forget all that. He says, it's nothing compared to what I'm about to do. It's nothing compared. You think that was cool? Well, just wait. I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. See, this is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. Jesus doesn't use the bitter herbs because it's not about what he did in Egypt any longer. God doesn't want us living in the past or holding on to that old covenant. God is saying through Isaiah that if you're stuck in the past, you're going to miss out what I'm doing in the present and potentially forfeit what I've planned for you in the future. Quit looking at the past. Stay engaged in this moment. 
And right now at this supper, Jesus is unfolding that new thing with his disciples, a new covenant, not just between God and a nation, but now with God and the entire world, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. No more living in the past. You won't have to be reminded about how bad slavery was because that old life is going to be past. I'm doing something new today. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, God speaking through the prophet says, This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. And after those days, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The laws will no longer be on stone tablets in a box made of gold, but it will be written on the hearts of those who believe. God is going to have a relationship with his people like they have never known. He's going to give them a new nature that's going to overcome the old nature. He's going to lead them into fellowship with God in a way they could never imagine and give them this nature that's going to overcome sin and the slavery of the world. You see, the Lord's Supper only contains the bread and the wine because as believers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer united with an animal's death that was only good enough to just cover sin. But through the broken body of the Lord, we are united with the bread of everlasting life. Our sins are washed away. We are given his righteousness like a new wardrobe of clothes surrounded in the glory and holiness of our great God. The unleavened bread represents the sinless nature of Jesus Christ. And by it being broken, it symbolizes and reminds us of him being broken for us. That it's through his broken body that salvation is open to us. And as we eat the bread, it symbolizes how we've now become one in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of the animal sacrifice that was poured out to paint over the doorposts of the, the, the doors of the people in Egypt is no longer included in here. The pouring out of the blood because Jesus' blood is poured out for us on the cross. The doorpost, the blood of the animal on the doorpost wasn't enough to forgive them of their sins or cleanse from sins. It only covered their sins. That's why they had to recreate this or reproduce this ceremony time and time again, but now as we drink the wine from the cup, which symbolizes the blood of God, is a picture that is through the blood of Jesus Christ, he is purifying and cleansing our hearts. With a pure heart, we stand in a right relationship with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says that and since we've been made right with God in his sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Ephesians 1.7 says he's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Our sins are not merely covered, but they are forgiven. They are washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, Israel was still in their sins with blood being on the door, but we are forgiven and cleansed of our sins with his blood covering our hearts. Isaiah 1.18 Isaiah says, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. God's new thing was that he was going to truly set us free. Free from our sin. Free from our enslavement to the world. Free from our blindness that draws us back to living for ourselves. See, the core concept of this message today is that if you have repented of your sins, you've trusted in Christ, when you gather at the table of the Lord, is that the Passover celebration was commemorating what God did for the nation of Israel, but the Lord's Supper is a celebration commemorating what God has done for you. It's personal, and it's amazing. If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've given him your life, you've given him your heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and new life has begun. What he has done in you and for you is he has made you new. You're not responsible for what once was. It's been forgiven. It's washed by the blood. That's why we say everyone matters to God, that it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done because in Christ, you are not that. You're not defined by your past. You are defined by his future for you. The Lord's Supper is a reenactment of the new covenant or it's an enactment of the new covenant. It's confirmed by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us on the cross. But the thing is, many churches, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it seems to be like this time of sorrow like this, this time of mourning and of grief because we're constantly thinking about death and the death of Christ as if we were going to the funeral. But the Lord's Supper is not a time of sorrow, church. It's a joyous celebration because salvation has come. We have victory through Jesus Christ, which is why Matthew records that as the disciples left this dinner, this gathering, they left singing and praising God together because of this new thing God has done. As we observe the elements of the the bread and the wine, this should make hope rise in your heart that you can overcome the challenges in everything that you face. Joy should rise in your heart knowing that God is for you and not against you. And shouts of praise should come off of your lips because of how thankful you are for what God has done done and doing in you. This is not a time of mourning. This is a time of celebration. We should not come to this table in sorrow. We should come rejoicing that Jesus has conquered the death in the grave and his forgiveness is not only possible, but it's guaranteed for those who put their faith and trust in him. At the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, God told Israel, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And it is now through the broken body and blood of Christ that in the last days when God visits judgment on the earth once and for all and Jesus Christ returns to make all things right, when God looks at you, it will not be judgment that strikes you. Death will pass you by because unto you is granted eternal life those who are washed by the blood of Jesus. We have Passover. We have the Supper. And the significance to us is what is called the body of Jesus Christ. The table of the Lord binds us together. It's not just a a tradition that we do. 
It binds us together as a believers in Jesus Christ, uniting us in our faith, and it stands as a testament to who we are and what we have in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 16 and 17, this is what Paul tells the church of Corinth. He says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? Though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. This brings us together. You know, in our day and age, as we look at the world, we watch the news, there's so much division. There's so much animosity. This group against this group against this group against this group, and especially now in the political season, it, it just seems to be what everyone is talking about. But you know, there's one thing that unites us all, and that is Jesus Christ. In Revelation, the picture in heaven, it says, every nation, tribe, and tongue, that one day everyone will recognize that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. If anything can bring us together, it's our faith in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper is that reminder that it doesn't matter what neighborhood you grew up in. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor. We all come to God through the same door, the same way, and that is through placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we remind ourselves of that truth. That's why there should not be black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches because we are all the church. We are all the body. And it's the blood and body of Christ that brings us together. But we eat the body of Christ at the table. We have become the body through our faith in Jesus. And it's our faith that brings us together and propels us forward as ambassadors of the gospel and administrators of his grace. And this uniting together is a holy relationship, one that God holds in high esteem. See, in the church of Corinth, they had a lot of problems. Not that churches do. I don't know if, you know, you didn't know that. But the church of Corinth had a lot of problems. Paul had to write them two different books on two different occasions to kind of give them a holy spanking. You see, and they were taking the church of God, the body of Christ, which is us, not a building, it's us, and the Lord. They were taking the church for granted. Instead of giving themselves, of, of themselves and serving one another, and by blessing the body, instead they served each other. They were selfish, they were inconsiderate, and they abused the body. They sinned against the body of the Lord through the choices that they were making in the lives that they were living. And it was evident when they were coming together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what Paul tells the church in regards to the Lord's Supper. He says, in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. It sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. And this is important for me. You know, again, we talked about how different backgrounds and traditions kind of influence how you like to observe the Lord's Supper. I was a part of a previous ministry. We did the Lord's Supper every month. It was the first Sunday of every month. It was on the calendar. But you know how many times it got forgotten? 
And like last second before service, it was like a mad dash to make sure we had enough to serve everyone. Right, right, became just something we did, and it lost significance. And that's why here at Vertical Life Church, we just don't do it on a schedule. We do it to make sure it has meaning, because this is something significant in the life of a Christian. He's saying, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. It's lost its significance. It's lost its meaning for you. So some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing of other, uh, with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I will certainly not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep it significant. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Keep it significant. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Keep it significant. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The Lord's Supper is not just a tradition. It's significant. It's powerful if you open your heart and your mind to it. And see, this church, they took it for granted. They weren't walking in love for one another. They weren't turning from their sin and repentance it was an every-man-for-themselves kind of church. They were fighting for their selfish desires and what they wanted and how they wanted it, all the while neglecting those in need. You see, they had an inauthentic faith. It was for show. It was for camaraderie to say, hey, look what I'm a part of. But it was not true fellowship with the Lord. And so at eating at the Lord's table didn't bring the blessing and uniting of the faith and the fellowship with God in their presence. No, it brought them judgment because they were spitting on the Lord's sacrifice by the way they were living. And through their counterfeit religion, they ate of the table unworthily. And at the table, they were eating and drinking God's judgment upon themselves. They are adding more guilt to their already guilty souls. And there are many people who will gather around the Lord's table in churches all over the world. They'll participate in their traditions and in their customs, and they too won't find blessing at the table, but judgment. And so today, before we come together, before we gather around the table and we celebrate the death and victory of the Lord, like Paul instructed the Corinthians, I'm going to invite you to go into a time of prayer and examine yourself. 
Are you taking the body of Christ for granted? Are you leveraging religion just to appease your mind, to make yourself feel better about the choices that you're making, just so you can continue to walk in a selfish and sinful lifestyle? Or are you thankful and eager to commune with God, to unite with the body, to show love for one another? Are you walking in repentance for the Lord? When your, your sin is revealed, are you broken over it? Do you confess it? Do you turn away from it? Do you get it out of your life? Or do you just say, well, it's just the way I am? Are you excusing your sin or walking away from your sin? Are you making every effort to live a holy and blameless life set apart for God in his honor and glory? See, if you haven't given Jesus your heart, it doesn't matter how many traditions you keep. It doesn't matter how many customs you follow. Your faith is in vain. If you would surrender your life, give it to him. When you come to the table, it will be blessing that you experience. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Maybe you're here today, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never made the decision and said, God, I believe in you. I believe in what your son did for me. Forgive me of my sin and save me. You've never done that in this place today. Then today, that is your first decision. That is your next step. She said, come to the Lord and confess him as your Lord and Savior. To believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. And the scripture says, you will be saved. Your sins will be covered. The blood of Jesus Christ will wash your sins away. If that's you here today, right here in this moment, I just invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just repeat this after me from your heart to God. Say, Father, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I know Jesus had to die for me. His blood was spilled for me. Forgive me of my sins. I place my faith in your son. Jesus is Lord, now and forever. Give me the faith to turn away from my sins, no matter the cost, so that I can live a worthy life for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, just continue to examine your heart before the Lord. Take that time to really ask yourself some serious questions. And when you're done, I invite you to get up from where you are to make your way down to the front and to get some wine and some bread. Just a matter of process. If you would leave from your right, my left, come down to the front, get the elements, and then take off to my right, your left, to go back to your seat. There is juice for the kids or for those that have an issue with wine, and there's wine for the adults or those who are free to partake. And I just invite you to, when you're ready, to come down. If you have mobility issues and you're unable to 
stand or walk, just raise your hand and Jason will bring some to you. And then once everyone is back to their seat, we'll have a time together where we celebrate the death of our Lord.